Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LaysightNews.com. Today, we have a very interesting show for you on a book that I think all of you should read. It's a very challenging book in many ways, but I think helps to encapsulate what's going on in our culture in a way that other books have failed to do. And the book is called Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. The book is by Katie Faust. And Them Before Us is also the name of a movement that she and a number of others have launched. And just to give you the description of this from her website, she says, Them Before Us is a global movement defending children's rights to a mother and a father. They strive to put children before adults in every conversation about marriage and family. They seek to prioritize the rights of children in the culture and the courtroom, the personal and the public. And their three goals are to educate the public on a child-centric perspective of marriage and family, to represent the rights of children on policy matters, and to translate core them-before-us messages into every language. Now, as you can imagine, almost every issue that we discuss on this show, on LifeSite in general, on many other publications that focus on social conservative issues, really do boil down to the natural family and the place of children in it, whether it be divorce in general, whether it be adoption by same-sex couples, whether it be the definition of marriage, abortion, transgenderism. Work your way down the list. And what we find is that we're imposing a world made for adults onto children, and children are serving the desires of adults. And of course, that's true in increasingly insidious ways. And so the book that Katie and her co-author wrote is, is really a phenomenal book, and I've been wanting to have her on the show for a bit. We've been going back and forth on how to make that happen. The discussion you're about to hear, I'm hoping, will be the first of several discussions I'd love to have with her on this subject, because I think she pulls things together in a way that many of us have been waiting for. Highly recommend the book. Thembeforeus.com is where you can take a look at what she's doing. And here's my, hopefully first, conversation with Katie Faust. Just to start off, Katie, maybe introduce all of our listeners to your book. It's an exceptional book. Robbie George endorsed it, which is really cool. Everybody who knows who Robbie George is will think that's very cool. So maybe give us, give us a rundown of why you wrote this book, what it's all about, and the impact it's made so far. Very honored to have Robert George write the foreword. We joke a little bit that we're trying to help him with his career, right? He needs a bump, so we're here to help. No, it was a gift to have him write the foreword because what this book does is it advocates for children's right to their mother and father. This is a natural right. This is a right that can be discovered through natural law. This is also a right that has been recognized in the most widely ratified treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And yet, very few people, especially in America, understand or can even articulate that children have this fundamental right to their mother and father. Robert George is one of them. So it was wonderful that he was willing to put his name right there, right up front. And honestly, the the forward is worth the cost of the book alone. So we are advocating for children's natural right to their mother and father. Conservatives understand that children have a right to life. The same basis for advocacy can also be made when it comes to children's rights in the family. And if children have a right to their mother and father, which they do, then that has implications for all of these conversations around marriage and family. So we set the book up with chapter one, just establishing that children do indeed have a right to their mother and father, talking about the connection between the right to life and the right to one's parents, illustrating that this is a natural right, and talking about how nobody on the 
left or the right is going to get anything they want unless we can defend this fundamental child right. The next chapter, we talk about the importance of biology in the parent-child relationship, that children don't just have a right to parents. They don't just have a right to a mom and dad. They have a right to their mom and dad. And that biology affords children statistically the safest adults in their life and the biological identity that children crave, then you automatically grant children the perfect gender balance in the home. They get a male parent and a female parent that maximizes child development. And then after that, we just go issue by issue from the definition of marriage to no-fault divorce, to same-sex parenting, to sperm and egg donation, to surrogacy, and even to a proper understanding of adoption through the lens of children's right to their mother and father. So we, we think that this is the only way forward when it comes to discussing issues of marriage and family. It is pro-child. It's not anti-adult. It's pro-child. And it's a secular case. You know, we're not making a religious argument here. We are make, we are appealing to a universal authority, and that is the authority of the natural world. So we hope that it serves as a reference point for people that are going issue by issue, but that also casts a vision for how do we do real child advocacy in a holistic manner across the globe. Now, so much of, of what you've said should be instinctive, I think, especially for conservatives, but it's instead been incredibly controversial to point out really basic things. So, for example, the idea that children need a mother and a father. I've never understood why our I should say how that became controversial, but I remember this is probably six or seven years ago on a panel discussion in Australia on, on the Q and A panel that they were having, where somebody made the point that women needed are sorry that children need mothers and fathers, men and women, and and Dan Savage, an LGBT activist, just erupted and called this bigotry. And I remember thinking if you stripped away all the other arguments that were made, essentially he was saying that it was bigoted to say that children needed their mothers, which strikes me as one of the most uncontroversial statements that you could actually make. And there's definitely a lot of people on the so-called right now who would buy into this, right? We saw Jordan Peterson's promotion of Dave Rubin's arrangement with with surrogates, the intentional creation of of motherless children. You have a lot of so-called conservatives like Meghan McCain, etc., who also are are very enthused about these sorts of family arrangements. So how did this become such a crazy debate and and also how can the right sort of reclaim what should have been instinctive territory but it appears has rapidly gone downstream with the culture? Yeah, the right has fallen prey to everything all the tactics that the left has been building on for the last couple of decades. So the left and progressive family structure in general makes the entire case based on adult sexual desires, sexual expression, sexual identity, sexual fulfillment. It's very adult centric. And the right is starting to get infected with the same adult centric narrative, right? That if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy. That adult sexual expression is the highest level of good. That the, the worst thing of all is an adult having to sacrifice their own sexual sexual or romantic desires to conform to children's right and need to be raised by their mother and father. And so the problem is we are being discipled by the left. The right is being taught how to talk about these issues by progressive left. And that is where we need to break free. Just like we decided to reject the narrative that abortion is primarily an issue of women's rights and decided to instead make our case based on, nope, this is really about the children. Women are struggling. They do get 
scary diagnoses. Sometimes they are in unplanned pregnancies. But ultimately, when we get that question wrong, the victim is not the woman, the victim is the child. We need to take that same mentality into marriage and family issues. And that begins by understanding that mothers and fathers are not interchangeable in the life of children, that biological parents actually do offer something that children need and crave in terms of the most likely to be the safe, most safe and loving adults in their life, and that children long for their biological identity. And what follows, obviously, is that men and women are different in parenting, and kids benefit from those differences. And so that is one thing that we're trying to do is to say, first, we're going to talk about the realities of who children are, where they came from, and what they need. If you can understand that, and we make that case based on the highest level social science and the stories of kids themselves that were deprived of a biological parent through sperm or egg donation or who were raised in a two mother or two father home. You listen to their stories, listen to their examples of father hunger that they experienced, even though they were raised by two loving women. Listen to these children created through sperm donation who laid in bed fantasizing about who their father was and trying to write the perfect letter when they discover his identity so they don't get double rejected by him again, even though they were raised by a loving heterosexual couple. Look these kids in the face. Understand what is lost when we compromise on marriage and family. And that is the backbone. And that is the substance that you need when you then go in to examine a Dave Rubin and surrogate pregnancies. Very quickly, when you look at this from the perspective of the child, you realize Modern family is just code for child loss. And so if conservatives are going to get this right, we need to adopt the tactics of the pro-life world where we say children have an unflinching right to life. Whatever adult you are going through, it does not justify violating children's right to life. We now take that into the marriage and family world and we say children have a right to their mother and father. Whatever you are going through, adult, whether it's experiencing same-sex attraction, whether it's infertility, whether it's being single and 40 and you desperately want a baby, whether it is going through a struggling marriage where you're trying to figure out dealing with childhood baggage and you're looking for an easy exit in terms of a divorce, whatever it is you are going through adults, it does not justify violating children's right to be known and loved by their mother and father every day and exalting and elevating adult desire above that fundamental child right will harm children for life, their physical health, their mental health, their relational health, their academic health. It is all going to be impacted if they lose a connection to their mother or father. Let's take a look at some of the most common things that are heard. There was an interesting segment on, on British TV just a couple of weeks ago with Carolyn Farrow, where she was making a similar case to what you make in the book, but just pointing out that the data indicates that children just who have mothers and fathers and grow up in these homes, you know, often produce the best outcomes. And what was interesting to me was not that those on the panel disagreed with her and produced alternative data and said, no, but how about if you look over here, which is what a lot of LGBT activists will do. They'll try to sort of mob you with other data that's been, you know, cherry picked very carefully, ignores the questions at hand, etc. It was the outrage that they felt, right? And you started to hear a lot of things like my kids just want me to be happy, which is not true. And the kids don't even have any real understanding of what's going on. Like I've talked to 90 year olds who are still traumatized by by their parents' divorce. So how do you respond to this whole basic excuse that you hear over and over and over again, which is my kids understand and my kids want me to be happy? No, your kids want you to love their other parent. 
that is what they want. And statistically, we've been studying family structure for decades. Adult happiness does not guarantee child happiness. Well, nothing guarantees child happiness. But statistically, the closest thing that we have to ensuring that children are not just happy, but that they are safe, that they are loved, that they are not abandoned, that they are not neglected, is their own biological parents married to one another for life in a low conflict relationship. And so this whole thing that if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy. That is a lie. That is a statistically verifiable lie. So we have the, we have the research, right? And, and we have the research that lines up with common sense and that is validated by natural law. You know, that panel with Carolyn Farrow, I, tweeted about it because they mobbed her, right? They didn't even have, they didn't even give her a chance to respond on all that. And that, you know, she was saying kids should, all she was saying is kids shouldn't be taken away from their mothers. And some of the panelists were saying, who's taking children away from their mothers? There is literally an international industry devoted to creating intentionally motherless children. There's an organization called Men Having Babies that specifically seeks out the cheapest wombs around the globe and helps you select designer designer gametes from college co-eds so that you can manufacture and design and create an intentionally motherless child. Like it's not just happening. We're making bank off of it. And so, yes, very often what you're going to hear in all of these different cases, whether it's divorce or same-sex parenting or sperm and egg donation or surrogacy, is they will always, just like the pro-life world, they will immediately hop over to the exceptional cases, to the outliers, right? And then they're going to build their case on the outliers. Well, oh, you're saying that a child would be better off with two abusive biological parents than a loving heterosexual, a loving homosexual couple, right? They're always going to pull out those exceptional cases. And we need to say, those are exceptional. It is the exception to have abusive biological parents. And it is the exception for an unrelated adult to invest more, connect more, and be more protective of a child. That is the very reason why adoptive parents like me and like so many people listening to this podcast had to go through screenings, vettings, background checks, and home studies because social workers are not fools. They know that placing a child with an unrelated adult is risky. And that is why I can't believe Jordan Peterson didn't hone in on this in his conversation with with Dave Rubin. He said, isn't it interesting that the parent-child relationship is the only relationship that's not regulated by the government? And that's true except when it comes to unrelated adults who want to get their hands on kids. And then adoption is highly regulated for that very reason. So unfortunately, very few people get this right. And what we're trying to do in the book is, in essence, to put this data and this information into the hands of the only people that seem courageous enough to be able to seek to understand and get this right. And that is ordinary Americans, because as you saw with Dave Rubin's announcement, with congratulations from the official PragerU account and the official Blaze TV account, even conservative elites are getting this wrong. And so it's up to us, the ordinary moms and dads, men and women out there, to figure out how to advocate for the rights of children, because if we don't, they will be harmed. Now, one of the things that was very interesting about your book that I kind of want to introduce the listeners to is kind of the history of, of how this came about. And one of the questions I've been wanting to ask you is you have a couple of things going on here at the same time, right? You have the sexual revolution, which in some ways precedes, but is also assisted by the advent of the birth control pill. And then you have the rise of technology, which just as the natural family structure is blown apart by social change, kind of enables everybody to ignore a lot of the obvious 
consequences of that. In other words, right, two men or two women can now, for the first time in human history, kind of have a child, air quotes. They can do so without getting somebody else's child. They can do so through all of these reproductive technologies that we've created that makes these sorts of things possible. And to what extent do you see the sexual revolution as separate from all these technologies that have risen up? And to what extent do you think that these new reproductive technologies and the technocratization of human life grew up in response to the sexual revolution? How do you see the interplay between these two historical phenomenon? We cannot get to the place where you've got two men who are creating intentionally motherless children without radical changes in three areas. Number one, that culture changed, right? Cultural ideas changed. And a lot of that was sexual revolution, sexual liberation. Another one was technological changes, right? First birth control, separating sex from diapers. But then IVF and reproductive technologies that separate sex from babies. And then the legal changes, the, the changes in our laws that have made it so much easier to disconnect babies from their parents. That began with no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce was the original redefinition of marriage. And now you've got same-sex marriage, which says, well, you know, now you can exclude mothers or fathers from the equation of the home. And now what you have, we address this in chapter four, is an actual undoing of the parent-child relationship in laws. And so now we have what I think is the most dangerous legal change, and that is the definition of parenthood. It used to be that parenthood was defined by biology or by adoption. Those were the two ways that you could be deemed the parent of a child. And that makes sense because biology affords a level of child protectiveness that so far no other relationship can. And in the absence of biology, adoption afforded some level of security and safety for the child through the rigorous screenings and background checks. But now parenthood laws are moving in a new direction to say that intent makes you a parent. If I intend to parent this child, even though I'm unrelated, even though I haven't done an FBI background check, if I had the money and means to put together sperm, egg, and womb, I can walk out of a hospital with this baby and total parental custody and rights over them. And so what we've got is we cannot have this place where you've got two men creating intentionally motherless children and being deemed the parents of the child without technological changes, cultural changes, and legal changes. And honestly, All three of those fronts need to be retaken. We need to go on the offensive when it comes to reclaiming ground in all three of those areas if we're going to get serious about protecting children. How does one start going about that? I like I remember when this shift started to happen to started to happen at, at CPAC in 2010 when one of the speakers was bringing up the natural law case against same-sex marriage and same-sex adoption, right? Essentially making the case that it's not marriage. Marriage has a definition, you know, two men can call their relationship a marriage, but it defies what the natural meaning of the word marriage is. And he got booed like crazy. And I remember that kind of striking me because if you're going to get booed saying basic natural law facts, you know, rooted in a, in a Christian law tradition that everybody understood 15 minutes ago at the most conservative conference in America, or I should say what used to be the most conservative conference in America, you know, things are obviously shifting a lot more than, than, than I would like to think. And, you know, you saw the same thing with some of the discussions at the recent national conservatism conference. There's a lot of debate even amongst conservatives about what's the line of attack to take here. Now there's some people who say, We've figured out how we can be effective on on the pro-life issue. Let's stick to that. Let's not touch anything that has to do with LGBT, but everything you're discussing essentially has to do with LGBT because when we're talking about having the right 
to, you know, your parents, having the right to a mother and a father. All of these things are centering on those hot button issues. And so when you say we should go on the offensive, how do you propose we go on the offensive in a culturally effective way? So first of all, I have benefited immensely from thinkers like Ryan Anderson and Robert George and Sharif Girgis and their What is a Marriage Natural Law Argument. It is quoted extensively in chapter one of my book. However, I don't see the natural law case for marriage necessarily creating people that are willing to say, I can lose friends over this issue, because that's really what it is. It is the pressure and it is the social acceptance that is now governing so much of our response to these issues, including the response of conservatives. I understand, like I need those arguments, but they are not necessarily the thing that lights a fire under people. So I was at NatCon two weeks ago at Miami and I gave what I think might be my most important speech and it's called This is a Child, where I build this case from the bottom up, where I say, this is a child. She is created when the gametes of one man and one woman come together. Not only are this is this man and woman necessary for her creation, but they are necessary for her thriving. And then I go through the social science harm that goes along with father loss, namely that children's telomeres, the end caps of their chromosomes are shortened when they lose their father. Like you are actually altering their chemical makeup when they don't have a dad in their life. And then I go on to talk about the identity struggles. Like why is it that we now have 95% of adoptions that are open adoptions? Because children long to know from whom they came, even if they can't be raised by those adults. Then I talk about the identity struggles that so many children created through sperm and egg donation experience. Then I go on to talk about the complementary ways that men and women, mother and father. And only then can you say, what does this tell us about the modern family? It tells us that all adults, single, married, gay, and straight, fertile and infertile, must conform to the rights of child, the child. In this world of them before us, them the children, before us the adult, nobody gets a pass. Every adult must conform to what children need and have a right to. So, That was a very well-received speech at what I think is arguably one of the most conservative mind meetings that we've got happening in the world right now. And I didn't hear, there was nobody pushing back against that that I heard, obviously. Maybe maybe there was, and, and I didn't catch wind of it. But this is the way forward. And it is not the way where we say the problem is the gays. That is one huge angle that conservatives have absolutely gotten wrong, where we said, well, we've got an issue with gay marriage, but we're really not going to talk about divorce. Well, we've got a problem with two men creating a surrogate born baby. But, you know, if a heterosexual couple needs to use surrogacy, it's no big deal. The hypocrisy has hamstrung us and that needs to end. We need to stand unflinchingly on the rights of children and insist that every adult conform to those rights. So it's a radical message because it's going to make demands of all of us, but it's actually the only effective way to make this case. And and by the way, this is the reality of the natural world. If we don't make this case, somebody will in 20 years or 30 years, because this natural law reality, the reality of who children are and what they need, it's never going away. You can't legislate away a child's longing for their mother or father. You're either going to have laws that validate those natural longings and those natural rights, or you're going to ignore them, but they're not going to be ignored forever. Natural law will rise to the surface again. And I say, let's do it now so we can stave off the damage for as many children as possible. 
It's interesting the way you frame that, because I think the a lot of the European conservatives have been saying things like this for a while, or more accurately, didn't stop saying them like you saw in, in North America. North America seems to go uniquely nuts when it comes to progressive ideologies, because you'll notice, you know, over across the pond, you have a lot of French and British feminists, for example, who are not caving into a lot of the ideology that has completely metastasized feminism in the U.S. So there's all these different varying fields, and there's a lot of them that would be, for example, appalled by 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 extreme pornography appalled by surrogacy all of those sorts of things and they often point to these heartbreaking real stories as you do in your book to make your case and i'm wondering because you pointed out earlier in our conversation that just as with abortion and indeed with anything they want to legalize what you have is is progressives defaulting to extreme situations and sort of doing what dan savage did during the interview that i mentioned which is basically saying like how dare you say that my son isn't being well served by his two dads etc and so when we're talking about issues like in vitro fertilization when we're talking about issues like surrogacy, all of these these various things. How do we respond to genuinely compelling and heartbreaking stories, right? What do you do to somebody who says Barack and Michelle Obama conceived their children through in vitro fertilization? Are you suggesting they shouldn't have their daughters? How do we go about responding to what we know inevitably is going to take place? We need to make our case unflinchingly on the rights of children. So I understand that a lot of people use IVF. But I think especially pro-lifers need to have their eyes opened that IVF is not a child-friendly technology. I was at Belmont Abbey College last week talking about on the American conservative conference called Life After Roe. And I said, you know, I agree that we need to be fighting for the rights of the unborn. But do you understand that the IVF industry takes more embryonic life than the abortion industry does? I mean, By the numbers, you had nearly 700,000 babies aborted in 2019, and you had nearly 900,000 that didn't make it through the IVF cycle. The majority of IVF babies, the babies that are created in laboratories, will not be born alive. Only 7 to 8% will. The rest of them are going to be selected, discarded, graded, frozen perpetually. They won't survive the thaw. thaw. They'll be selectively reduced if they are implanted. This is not an industry primarily concerned with making new life, right? The baby making industry discards and abuses more embryos than the baby taking industry does. So for every child that is born through IVF or surrogacy, hallelujah, what a gift. They are the absolute minority of laboratory created babies. And if we are serious about protecting unborn life and embryonic life, then we have to unmask the way that the IVF industry or big fertility designs and discards hundreds of thousands of unborn lives every year. So we need to make sure that our sympathy lies primarily with the children and not the adults, even though the adults are going through something very, very difficult. Infertility is an absolutely crushing load. An adult who experiences same-sex attraction, who would be an amazing mother or an amazing father, who and they long to be a mother or father, right? We need to empathize with their struggles. A single woman who's 42 and hasn't met Mr. Wright, who desperately wants to be a mom, she deserves our empathy. But none of these situations, none of these scenarios, no amount of adult longing or loss justifies violating children's right to life or right to their mother or father. We need to be very clear about who primarily deserves our empathy in these situations, and it's not adults. I think that is a very powerful way to frame it simply because... 
people instinctively think that children are more innocent. It's it's why even war photographers usually choose pictures of children who have been hurt rather than adults because they know that will invoke more sympathy. And part of that is is good. It's because we recognize they're more helpless and as such our responsibility to them is greater, which is why I think the title of your book is so brilliant. But but considering the pushback especially from, you know, the libertarians in the rapidly dissolving conservative coalition, how has your sort of crusade been so far? So you've got the publication of the book. I believe if, if I remember correctly, the book came out February of last year and you've been all over the place since then you've, you've spoken at all these different conferences, not just the book's endorsements, but I've talked to a lot of people who have read the book and it, people have been recommending it all over my social media now for, for quite, quite some time. So your message has clearly given a lot of people trying to put the pieces together, the framing they need to make the case. How would you say it's going so far? Is this message really gaining traction? And, and do you think there are a lot of people on the right who are willing to go on the offense unapologetically in defense of children? I think that we have been waiting for this. Honestly, I feel like if you're talking about Roe, Roe versus Wade, right, we are where the pro-life movement was right after Roe versus Wade came down, where people instinctually know that something's wrong. We're going to have to fight it. It sure looks like all of the laws and the culture and the social pressure is swinging against us. And yet, and yet we just can't give this up because there's a natural reality here. You can't change this based on what Supreme Court justices say, or no matter how public opinion swings, there are children that need to be defended. And so that is probably the biggest message that I hear when people read the book or come in contact with the material is you can't unsee it. Like, first of all, people say, I'm never going to look at these issues again the same way, right? I'll look at Dave Rubin celebrating and announcing his two motherless babies. And I, I, I felt like something was wrong, but I didn't really know how to say it. So now you've given me the words to something that I was uneasy about, but didn't know how to articulate. Next, they say that this is what has given them courage to speak out because instead of just, I mean, I love the natural law arguments, but instead of like philosophical principles that need to be defended, I am giving you the lives of actual children, the voices and the stories of actual children that need to be defended. It is very concrete. It is the image of the war-torn child. You, you look at that, ba- that child and you go, we have got to stop this conflict because that baby is being harmed. That is what we're doing here, right? We are saying all of these conversations about every single thing that has to do with marriage and family, you are creating child victims it is unacceptable. These children need to be defended. And so it allows you to actually, it gives you courage to speak up. And not only that, but it gives you sort of a seamless garment of child protection. It's not like you just have to say, well, here's my argument against no-fault divorce. Well, here's my objection when it comes to same-sex parenting. Well, here's my concern when it comes to IVF. These are not disconnected issues. All of these topics that you and I are talking about, the definition of marriage, reproductive technologies, who has a right to adopt, et cetera, all of those are really one conversation. The conversation is, are you protecting children's rights or are you ignoring children's rights? Ultimately, all of these different topics are really just symptoms of the same question. And so we are trying to give people the vocabulary and the protective instinct that they need to go out and make a case for this. So it's going well. I, I Obviously, there's Twitter haters, but they don't engage with the arguments, right? They engage in personal attacks. 
Because there really is no argument to be made statistically based on common sense, based on our biological design as a species. There really is no case to be made against this argument that children should be prioritized above the desires of adults. We've got, you know, the book's been out for more than a year. We already have five foreign language contracts for the book, which is kind of unheard of, especially for you know, somebody that doesn't have a huge social media following because the threats to children are global and the same arguments protecting them are going to be able to be translated into every cultural context and every language. So we are, um, you know, a lot of people say, Katie, what are you trying to do? And my answer is a global takeover. We need to take over every conversation about marriage and family in every country of the world. It simply is what needs to be done. So the book functions as a manual for that movement. And, and once you read it, you will never unsee it. Just to give people a little bit of encouragement, because many of the conversations on this podcast are not encouraging, but I find that in, in your succinct analysis and insightful definition of the problem, but then proposing a solution that for many people, again, as you put it, puts the puzzle pieces together for the first time, that there is is something encouraging there because one of the main reasons conservatives have lost so consistently is that they find themselves unable to actually defend their views against heartbreaking personal stories, you know, power for powerful personal testimonies. They get challenged by, uh, you know, by folks like Dr. Phil, like look this person in the face and tell them they shouldn't have a kid. You know what I mean? Like that's what they're up against as opposed to making arguments. So what are some encouraging signs since the book's publication, besides these, these foreign language contracts, just phenomenal to hear that give you hope that this is, this is going to turn into the movement that you're calling for in the book. Well, and I like what you point out is we have tactically, we have made several tactical mistakes as conservatives. I would say one tactical mistake is battling back family redefinition using primarily religious liberty arguments, right? I mean, even today, as we're looking down the possibility of, you know, in the lame duck session, rebuffing again, the laughably named Respect for Marriage Act, which disrespects children remarkably. Even then, most of the pushback against codifying that in a legislative manner comes from the objection that well, churches could lose their 501c3 status, or, you know, this is going to be bad for the baker or the florist. That does not engender a, a courageous response necessarily. The baker and the florist do need to be defended. But when you are talking about legislating away children's mother and father, that is what that is the impetus you need to rise up and be vocal, right? That is what I have found infuses people with courage. Another tactical problem that we have had in the fight against family redefinition and all these other technologies is, like you said, the other side very adeptly wields stories, right? The personal narrative. They've humanized their side of the argument better than we have. And we need to match story for story. So when Dr. Phil says, are you saying this person shouldn't be able to have a child? The answer is, are you saying that children shouldn't be able to have a father? Let me give you the stories of children who were raised without a dad. Look them in the eye and tell them that you need to codify, endorse, and promote their loss. So that's one thing that we've tried to do in the book as well, is we are humanizing the loss of these kids. So you cannot look away. And we've given you hundreds of 120 of them. So you can't say that's an isolated case. So I think tactically, we need to change the way we are approaching these issues and having it be story led and child centric is one of the main ways that we're going to actually win hearts and minds. So that is what's happening. I think that one of the best recent examples is I was invited to go on a 
a podcast, a Turning Point USA podcast a couple of weeks ago with one of their brilliant, bright, young hostesses. Her name is Alex Clark, and her audience is primarily 18 to 30-year-old conservative women, not necessarily super religious, and they don't talk about marriage and family a whole lot from the perspective of public policy issues. And so we gave a little teaser of the one-minute, you know, a one-minute teaser of the interview, and over you could see in response people saying, oh, I'm going to disagree with this. Oh, I'm going to be so mad when this is done. Oh, I've got a problem with this. Well, I used IVF, so I'm going to have an issue here. Or, well, I know people that are gay and raising kids, so I'm, I know I'm going to push back on this episode. And then the whole episode came out, which was like 75, a 75 minute episode, which was incredible. And you could see in the comments, people saying I was wrong. She was right. This finally gives words to something that I've been trying to explain. I can't argue with anything she's saying because I can see the reality in my own life and in the life of the people around me. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, this is impervious to objective rebuttals because this is grounded in natural reality. And we are, we are giving you a picture of the true victims. So where the message goes largely, except for the absolutely ideologically indoctrinated, we are finding great success. That's very encouraging. One of the practical questions I have is, so I agreed with, with basically everything you had to say. And I've, I've followed a lot of your stuff for quite a bit. I agree with pretty much everything you say publicly as well. So we're very much on the same page with all of this. And in some ways, you're also, you know, you're suggesting a, a shift to the tactics of the pro-life movement, which is, let's make the real point here, right? Abortion is not about a what, it's about a who. And so are all these reproductive technologies. I, quite frankly, think a lot of them should be illegal uh, for all of the reasons that you lay uh, lay out in your book, but there, there's two problems here. One, it's incredibly difficult to make something illegal once it's been legal. And you've got this massive industry that exists now. And second of all, when people ban abortion, as, as we see in a couple of states right now, of course, the, the left is attempting to make this look as horrifying and bloodthirsty as they possibly can and saying you're victimizing women, you're doing X, Y, Z. But we could always you know, point back to the violence of abortion. On the other hand, reproductive technology is not about getting rid of a child you don't want. It's about achieving a child that you desperately want, regardless of, of, the, of the ethics of the means that you're utilizing to do so. That makes it tougher in regards to the PR battle. Do you think that these things can be rolled back legally? And if so, how do we respond to the enormous number of people who are Christian, who might call themselves pro-life, who respond very emotionally to this? Because I've I've found that in discussions surrounding this issue, because I think that I I think IVF, you know, takes more lives than abortion does in most countries where it's become prevalent, especially in countries where, like in Canada, it's publicly funded. But these these things are not taken well by those who would be seen as natural allies most of the time. Well, you've got to highlight the true victims. And when it comes to reproductive technologies, especially when it comes to third. So the 900,000 children who did not survive the baby making process in the laboratory will not be here to speak for themselves. And honestly, pro-lifers just need to start advocating on their behalf as well, because those are distinct human lives that very often are callously disregarded, callously discarded because they were not deemed viable or they didn't make the grade or they were the wrong sex or whatever. They weren't even worthy to be put in the freezer. Right. So the pro-life world needs to start taking on those cases in terms of the third party reproduction world. Right. Where a third party was used, somebody else's sperm, somebody else's egg, somebody else's womb. Just you wait. Those children are rising up. Right. And maybe there's no consensus among them when it comes to whether or not it should be a technology that is employed by 
heterosexual couples or homosexual couples, but overwhelmingly they are saying, we have a right to know from whom we came. And now they are making gains. Australia just criminalized anonymous sperm donation because children are saying, we actually have a right to know from whom we came. We have a right to our medical information. You've got different places that are putting caps on the number of embryos that can be created because they're understanding that these technologies are commodifying children. And so we do have some bright spots on the horizon, but it is going to be, those gains are going to be made because we are highlighting that children are victimized. I am very grateful for the feminists that are fighting against things like surrogacy, but these battles will not be won based on feminist arguments because plenty of women consent to and make quite a bit of money off of renting out their wombs. These arguments are going to be won by highlighting the child victims here. And when a child is created, especially through third-party reproduction, they are, all re- they are always losing someone to whom they have a natural right, their mother or father. And those children will not be silent for long. It is expensive to tell their stories. It is, it is very costly for them to speak up. But the genealogical bewilderment or the medical confusion that they have about their own identity is trumping many of their parental connections. And they are now speaking up and saying, this is an injustice. So uh, there is hope on the horizon. I know what you're saying about people getting emotional about this. I've had people at evangelical conferences where I've been speaking who have got up and walked out when I start talking about things like IVF. But then when I dig deeper with them, most of them would say things like, Very few of them, let me just say, were able to accomplish the children that they have in their life without violating any child's right to life or any child's right to their mother and father. Many of them are now deeply conflicted because they still have six babies in a freezer, but she's 46 years old and she is now at the place where it actually would be dangerous for her to carry a pregnancy. And so many of these people, even if they used IVF to create their children, they can look back on that process and say, I wish I had known now, what I knew going into this, that some of my babies were going to be discarded um, and that I, I was going to, I was now going to deal with paying the storage fee for these six children who are the full biological siblings of the two incredible children I have at home. And I don't know what to do. So we need to shine the light on the real victims. We need to get this information out to as many people as possible. And then all of us, regardless of how we've personally struggled in these areas, because most of us have, most of us have had situations where our marriage has struggled or we've dealt with infertility or we've experienced same-sex attraction or we've been single longer than we would have liked. All of us need to decide to advocate on behalf of children rather than allowing our own personal suffering or longing to dictate how this conversation takes place. Katie, thank you so much for all your work and for taking the time to have this discussion. Can you please direct our listeners to where you post your work, where they can buy your book, where they can follow what you're up to? The best place is thembeforeus.com. Go to the very bottom and subscribe and you can stay up on everything that we're doing, which is a lot. There's a lot going on. We really are making gains in this global conversation. So stay connected with us. Our book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the other places, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. Read it and then contact us. We'll give you a free PDF study guide so that you can go through this with a few of your friends in the safety of your living room and make children's rights advocates 
out of your friends. I'm on Twitter. We're on all the social media platforms, but mainly just come and subscribe and stay connected to us because it really is like the elites have been captured, even the conservative elites. It is you and it is me. That is really the hope that children have when it comes to fighting the family redefinition and the child commodification machine of reproductive technologies. It's only ordinary adults that are going to be able to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Katie Faust of Them Before Us at thembeforeus.com. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Do go and check out what we're doing on the podcast at lifesightnews.com. You can click on the podcast tab. You can find us there. Subscribe to get future shows. Listen to past shows. We try to have discussions like this every week. And if you're interested, do like and subscribe. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. And we do hope you'll tune in again next week.